book of Ruth, and we will be in chapter 4 today. Uh, Ruth chapter 4, you'll find that on page 224 in the Pew Bible in front of you. I'd like to encourage you, as I do on most Sundays, to have Scripture in front of you, especially when we're studying narrative passages. I think you'll find it much more uh, easy to engage as we work our way. And we will, we have 22 verses this morning. We're going to go verse by verse and hopefully uh, we'll be referring back to God's Word time and again. And so please uh, have a copy of the Word of God there that you can uh, look as we work our way through this text. Uh, by the way, aren't you encouraged at the work that's being taken place at Eagle View? Yeah, just an incredible testimony um, to what God's people can do. And I'm so uh, happy and pleased to be involved with that, as I trust that you are. And thank you, Steve, for bringing us that uh, message. Well, by now, I hope you found your way to Ruth chapter 4. We'll begin in verse 1. Hear now the word of God. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, abide in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in the former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malone. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malone, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among the, his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthy in, the, in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, he who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. 
Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminabad. Aminabad fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Father, we thank you for your word in which we now can consider and set our hearts upon. We pray that you would help us to do so. I trust you want to speak to us through it and through your spirit who resides within us. And so we pray, dear Lord, that if it pleases you, you would work powerfully in our midst for your glory and for our gain, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. The Wisconsin State Journal was recently asked a number of personnel managers and some of the nation's largest corporations to tell some of their most unusual experiences when interviewing prospective employees. It was actually a very interesting read, some amazing stories, as they recounted these interview uh, sessions. One um, personnel manager said an applicant came and he became quickly uncomfortable with the questions that I was asking him, and so he challenged me to arm wrestle. (laughs) Another wore earphones to the interview, so loud that both he and the interviewer could actually hear the music. When asked to remove the earphones, the prospective candidate said, it's no problem, I could hear the music and you at the same time. Another explained that she didn't have time for lunch, and so she sat her hamburger and fries on the other side of the interviewer's desk and began to eat. Another fell asleep during the interview. My favorite story was of a bald-headed applicant who sat down and then quickly excused himself and came back with a head full of hair. (laughs) Finally, uh, one said, when questioned about their academic qualifications, confessed that they had not finished high school because they have been kidnapped and kept alive in a closet in Mexico for years. It is, uh, I imagine, not a surprise that, that none of these individuals were hired. It, of course, would have been a great act of grace to hire them. They didn't deserve to be hired. My fear is that when we're studying the book of Ruth, as we have for the past three weeks and again today, and we see the blessings in which God pours out upon her, and they are many, that we would conclude that Ruth deserved all of this. It is true, she's a remarkable woman, as we have seen. And uh, she is quickly growing in her godliness. But I would suggest to you today that everything that God gives to Ruth is undeserved by her. It is God's grace upon her. And Naomi, likewise, who had abandoned God with her family and then condemns God in the midst of trial, is likewise giving grace by God. The barley harvest, the gleaning, the lunch with Boaz, the protection from harm, a shirt full of barley, adventures at the threshing floor. It is all God's grace. He has been ruling in their life and overruling in order to love these two women who certainly do not deserve His love. And he continues to do so in Ruth chapter 4. And we shall explore the love of God, the sovereign, controlling, ruling love of God today. But what's interesting is that this book not only teaches us that God rules in love, it also shows us that God's rule is not always clear. 
We see throughout Ruth that God is in control. And we see throughout Ruth that God intends good. But we also see throughout Ruth that the path is not always straight. Uh, This uh, week, I'm going to take my son Gideon on his first backpacking trip. He just turned six. And so we're going to go and and we're going to hike about 10 miles. And later in the month, I'm going to take my three oldest kids up to upstate New York to the Adirondacks. And we're going to go backpacking for about five days. And we hope to do about 40 or 45 miles. And we're very excited for this. This is going to be a wonderful time. And when we, I take my kids backpacking, when people go backpacking, there's usually a goal that you have in mind. There's some waterfall that you're looking forward to see or some alpine lake, if you're fortunate enough, or, or some peak that you'll get on top of and you'll just be able to see for tens and tens of miles. And you're very excited about making it to these destinations. But the problem is you just don't drive up to them. There are valleys and cliffs and canyons, occasionally rock slides and down trees. You often are dry and hot in the day and cold and windy at night. You have to hide your food from bears, look out for snakes, navigate around beaver dams. The food is awful. The nights are sleepless with strange noises bouncing around. The switchbacks are hard. It is exhausting. Your ankles and knees and hips all scream as you try to carry 60 pounds up a 3,000-foot mountain climb. You don't just get to drive to the top. I think life is kind of like backpacking. Don't you think? There's a destination that you have that you want to reach, but the path is not always straight. That there are obstacles and twists and turns and challenges and at times majesty and wonder and beauty. I think it's why we have the book of Ruth. I think this is why God has given it to us so that we can have faith and hope, especially when life is hard and unclear and difficulty. And when a rock slide comes in front of us, as we've seen many times in this wonderful book, and we have to take a different path than the one we intended and often a much more difficult path than the one we had hoped. It does not mean our destination is changed. God continues to rule for our good, for our joy. And all the twists and turns and setbacks of life, God is ruling for your joy and ultimately for your glory. I think we've seen His rule throughout this book. I think we saw it in Ruth chapter 1 when we saw God's bitter providences. There Naomi and her family leave the promised land against God's will because of a famine. And there in the country of Moab, her husband dies. Her sons marry Moabite women outside the faith. They are married to them for 10 years without children. And then both her sons die. And Naomi comes back to Bethlehem with a stubborn and loving daughter-in-law. There she's greeted by her friends. Naomi's back. Naomi's back. She says, don't call me Naomi. That name is too much for this grieving and fearful widow. Naomi meaning pleasant. She says, rather call me Mara, which means bitter, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. And is that complaint that kind of sets up the book, I think, as we see that God is in control, but the question that Naomi presents to us, is God good? Is he good? We know he's sovereign. He's God after all. But is he ruling for our good? Well, we get to Ruth chapter 2 and we begin to see whether there's hope isn't there. There is food in the fields of Boaz. These ladies, these widows will survive and, and possibly a husband in Boaz. But Boaz, after two months of gleaning, makes no move. He doesn't do anything. 
And so we get to chapter 3 and the scheming mother-in-law takes things into her own hand. And she comes up with a plan, as we saw last week, that was incredibly inappropriate. She tells her daughter-in-law to get all dressed up and to sneak into this man's house and to crawl into bed with him and then do whatever he tells you to do. I'm just thankful we're past that chapter, to be perfectly honest, right? It's good to have that behind us. Well, she does this. She crawls into Boaz's bed and says, Boaz, I love you and I want to marry you and I, and I want to be the, I want to be your wife who crawls into bed with you. And Boaz responds in prayer. Thank you, Jesus, I think he says. He's pretty excited about this. And yet, just when we think all the problems are resolved, just when we think they live happily ever after, Boaz speaks up. He says, but there's a problem. There's another man who has a greater right to marry you, and I can't marry you if he wants to marry you. And all of a sudden, just when you think you make it to the peak, this massive rock slide just comes over the trail. And there's this barrier. And that's how we left chapter 3. These two widows wait, helpless, for their Redeemer to act. And now we come to Ruth chapter 4. This, of course, is the culmination of the story. I think this is the ending of all endings. If we study this correctly, you will work your way through this text and you will think, wow, you got to be kidding me. One pastor said this book is kind of like one of those movies when you get to the end of the movie and then something happens that you didn't see the movie was setting you up for, this totally new piece of information, and you're thinking, you got to be kidding me, and you want to go back and watch the whole movie all over again in light of this new piece of information that you now have. We thought God was taking us to this place, and we are going to realize, no, the place we thought we were going is, is nowhere near where God wants to take us. He wants to take us someplace far greater in mind. And so let's consider Ruth chapter 4 as we think this morning about the sovereign love of God. We see, first of all, God's sovereign love in a marriage for a couple. In fact, we're going to consider four aspects of God's sovereign love this morning. I do just want to let you know before we begin that my first point will be, will take up the most of my time. So if you're keeping time this morning, don't freak out. We'll spend a lot of time in point one, and then we'll pick up the pace. All right? So here we go. Uh, point number one, God's sovereign love in a marriage for a couple. You note verse one. Now Boaz had gone to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend. Sit down here. So we see here that Naomi was right, who she said in chapter 3 and verse 18, Wait, my daughter, until this matter, until you learn how this matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. And this is exactly right. Boaz is not going to rest. That morning, he goes out, and he is sitting there at the gate looking for the nearest kinsman redeemer. Now, we considered this last week, but just to remind you, the kinsman redeemer is just one word in the Hebrew, but we translate it into two English words. This man must be a kinsman. That must, that is, he must be the nearest adult relative. And he must be, secondly, a redeemer. He has to buy a person out of trouble, difficulty, debt, slavery, uh, widowhood. That's his job. A close relative who will redeem an individual. And so Boaz is sitting there and he certainly wants to marry Ruth and he is a kinsman redeemer to her. But there is a, another man who is actually closer kin to Ruth. 
Ruth by marriage. And so Boaz goes and sits at the gate waiting for him. Now the gate would be where you would enter this walled city of Bethlehem. And this would be a place in which official business would be conducted and judicial matters would be settled. And there Boaz is, is there to do business. He is there to go to court, if you will. And, and there um, just it happens, as you know, waiting, waiting for this man. And the Bible tells us in verse 1, Behold, you see that there? The Redeemer. And I don't know if you've been paying attention, but that word behold is quite often in the, used in this book of Ruth. Behold, the barley feast had started. Behold, she ended up in Boaz's field. Behold, Boaz happened to be at work today. Behold, there's a woman in my bed. Behold, uh, here is this uh, kinsman redeemer. And we might look at that and say, well, it's just all sorts of coincidences here in the book of Ruth. But I think more accurately, we would probably say there's a lot of providences in the book of Ruth. In fact, the, the Hebrew, from what I understand, literally means just then. It just like it happened. Like, wow, isn't this convenient? that this man happens to come by at this time. And here he is. Well, Boaz, seeing him, he tells him to sit down. And then he goes and gets some other fellows. In verse 2, as we see, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. So you see what Boaz is doing? He's getting witnesses, isn't he? He wants these ten men who are elders of the city to be witnesses. Now, it has come to my attention, by the way, that the word elder is closely related to bearded one. And so I don't know if that was a requirement back in those days for the elders to have beautiful beards. Um, I actually shared this in the elders meeting on Thursday. And so you pray for our elders and we'll see what happens. Um, But here they are, these ten bearded men. And they're sitting down there with Boaz and his relative. And they are about to begin negotiations here. As we see in verse 3, then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I'd tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there's no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. Now this is the first time we hear anywhere in this story of this piece of land. And it is somewhat startling. Like, what's going on? What do you mean she has land to sell? Because we're under the impression this whole time that she's destitute, that she's on the brink of starvation. She may not survive through the next season. And all of a sudden we hear, well, she's got this piece of property that she has on the market. This has actually caused scholars all sorts of confusion. And I counted seven different explanations as to what's going on here. And I'm not going to go over them, certainly. But let me just tell you what I think is perhaps happening. I, I, I would speculate that before Naomi and Elimelech left the promised land, that they probably tried to do everything they could before they were forced to leave. And I imagine they might have sold their land. And so off they go, they, they, they sell the land, they spend the money from that, they still can't make it, so they move to Moab to find better food. Well, when Naomi returns back to Bethlehem, that land is rightly belongs to her family. And so she has a right to redeem it, to buy it back. If she actually owned the piece of land at this time, she wouldn't even need a redeemer. See her searching for a redeemer? Let's find a redeemer. Let's find a redeemer. But she actually had the land. She owned it. She wouldn't need someone to redeem it. To redeem it is to buy it back for them. And so I think Naomi has returned to this to Bethlehem and has the right to buy back the property. But we know, of course, she has no money to do so. And so it seems to me that she's selling her right to redeem this property to her nearest kin. If it's not going to be in her family, of course she has no heirs, then it should be at least in her clan. And so her nearest male relative 
is now offered the option to buy that land. Boaz says, listen, there's land for sale. You're next in line. Are you interested? Do you want this piece of property? He was telling me because I really want it. And if you're not going to buy it, I would like to buy it. And at this time, I don't know if you get the feeling, but I'm kind of thinking, what are you doing, Boaz? Like you're messing this all up. I mean, he's like putting this on the golden platter. It's this really nice piece of property. And we know land is hard to come by. And if you want it, you can have it. And it will be yours in your family forever. She doesn't have any heirs. I really want it. But you know that you have the right. And we're thinking, well, what is he doing? Why is he, why is he offering it to this person in such a way? In fact, we're not surprised. Though we're disappointed when we see his response in the end of verse 4. And he said, I will redeem it. Right? And the crowd groans. No! We don't like this guy. We don't even know his name. We like Boaz. We want Boaz and Ruth to get together. And what is going on? And there's this rock slide that once again hits the trail. A tree comes down. I imagine if this book just ended right there in Ruth 4.4, wouldn't that be such a downer? Can you imagine Boaz going back to Naomi and saying, sorry, I tried, but the other guy, other guy wants it all. I think she would say, she'd no longer be bitter. She would be outraged, right? Call me livid. I mean, she would be fuming mad. She would not like this at all. But Boaz, as we've seen, is a godly man. and He's a man of great character. But he's also a, a shrewd man. He's sly. In fact, I think if uh, Boaz played poker, he, he would win every hand. Right? Not that I have any idea how to play poker, mind you, but he, if I'm trusted, he had this poker face, all cool and undisturbed, and he begins with all the positive and leaves out all the negative, doesn't he? The man says at the end of verse 4, yeah, I want this land, no problem at all, I'll buy it. Boaz in verse 5 says, oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you something. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Yeah, you feel free to buy the land, but you should know that it comes with a, a bitter mother-in-law, and she'll be living upstairs. And, um, right. and then, it, by the way, you have to marry Ruth. She's from Moab. You're going to love her. Right? Uh, um, unfortunately, she's the, the wife of the deceased. Her first husband died. I don't know. It could be the cooking. Um, but here, here you go. This woman is for you. And, and by the way, when you have a child with Ruth, which we'll certainly pray that you will, and you have a son, your son's not going to actually take your name, but he's going to take the name of Ruth's deceased husband. And by the way, he's going to do that in order to inherit the land that you're buying that one day you're going to have to give to him as he creates a whole different family. And so the money that you're shelling out for this land, not only do you not get the land, but you don't get the money back that you are using to buy it. And so Boaz kind of lays it all out before him. You see, to be a kinsman redeemer required sacrifice. You didn't do it out of self-interest. You do it out of love and compassion for those who are hurting. You don't do it for your own gain. You want to do this costly ministry, he says to this man. And so we wonder, will the gambit work? Well, note verse 6. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself. Yeah, that's right. And the crowd goes crazy, right? <laughs> Lest I impair my own inheritance, take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. I, I can't do it. He doesn't want to endanger his own estate and impair my own inheritance. He says, what, what, I mean, what happens if I only have one son? 
And that son takes the, the name of Malone. And I don't have an heir. What happens to my family lineage? What happens to my property? What happens to my name? By the way, it's interesting that his name is never mentioned, isn't it? And certainly Boaz knows his name. It's a close relative. And we see the author of Ruth is very keen to mention people's names throughout this book. But for this man, his name is not mentioned. In fact, up in verse 1, when Boaz says, friends, sit down, that word friend is the Hebrew phrase, palomi alomi. Now, you don't know what that means, and I don't know what that means. In fact, no one knows that, what that means. It's an idiom. It might be like you say, I got the heebie-jeebies. Right? And then I would say, well, what's a heebie? And you say, I don't know. Well, what's a jeebie? I don't know that either, but I got heebie-jeebies, right? And it's this meaningless phrase that they put together. And, and Palomi Alomi is this meaningless phrase. One translation actually calls him Mr. So-and-so. We might say in common parlance, hey, you, come and sit down. He is intentionally left nameless. You see, the irony that we see is that the man who's so interested in perpetuating his own name ends up without one. Well, here he is. I don't want it. I'm not going to enter in this costly ministry. And so we note this transaction in verse 7. Now, this was the custom in the former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was a manner of attesting in Israel. Again, we're not quite sure what, what's going on here with this exchange of a sandal. In fact, we know by the time the book of Ruth was written, they didn't know what this meant. This is why we have this kind of parenthetical phrase in verse 7 explaining what is about to happen to try to give them the context, which is very helpful for us in, in this small fact. You see what the author is doing. He's presenting this story as true. Right? This is not fable. In fact, I'm going to give you the facts that you don't even know why these things are happening, but I'm going to tell you because it actually happened. And so they said this exchange of a sandal. Some have speculated, which I find interesting, is that the shoes and the feet symbolize ownership or possession or power over something. And so in Psalm 8, for instance, God speaking about humanity, it says, you have put all things under his feet. What does it mean to be under our feet? It means we have power over it. And so he told Israel, every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. So when you walk on it, it implies this ownership over it, this possession over it. And then when Moses approached God in the burning bush in Exodus 3, he is told, as you know, to take off your sandals. This is not your place. This is my place, God says. This is holy ground. So I wonder if the transfer of sandals is a way of giving up his right to the land. Here, you have my sandal. You walk in my shoe. You have my right to own it now. And so he gives it to him in verse 8. So the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. And he drew off his sandals. All right, here's my shoe. You can have it. And Boaz reaches his summit, doesn't he? He makes it to the peak. He's going to get Ruth. In fact, the first time I read this, I kind of imagined Boaz playing it kind of cool. Are you sure you don't want it? Okay, if you don't want it, I guess I'll take it. But in my further studies, I don't think he's playing it cool at all. I think he's hollering like a schoolboy. You notice verse 9. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and, and to Malone. He says, It's mine. It's mine. And then he goes on in verse 10 and says, She's mine. She's mine. And Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malone, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead is inheritance that the name of the dead might, may not be cut off 
from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. I have taken her to be mine. In fact, I don't notice. You notice verse 9. You notice the crowd has now grown, right? It was first Boaz, Kinmen, and the ten elders. Well, then Boaz, look, verse 9, said to the elders and all the people. So people begin to gather around. What's going on? Something official is happening. And they're watching this battle of wits between these two individuals. And, and Boaz starts hollering in the midst of them and, and shouting, I got it, I got it. I'm pretty sure this is kind of like the scene at, in Rocky. You've seen that movie, of course. When he gets to the top of the stairs and his arms are thrust up in the air and he's got a sandal in his hand and he's got all these people around him and they're cheering and applauding and, and delighting and all this. Everybody's going crazy here. And it's just this huge celebration. In fact, he even calls for them to be witnesses at the end of verse 10. You are witnesses to this. Right? They want, he wants this in the minutes. Let's make this official. And they are, verse 11. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. We are witnesses. He took her. She became his wife. Ruth is now Mrs. Boaz. In some way. He took her to perpetuate, you see that in verse 10, the name of the dead, that that lineage might not be cut off today. He is willing to give up his own name for the name of another. He's willing to sacrifice. Quite in contrast to Mr. So-and-so, isn't he? He's willing to perpetuate the name of her deceased husband alone. And yet, who are we talking about today? Isn't that interesting? 3,000 years later, we still speak of Boaz the man who sacrificed his name for another. In fact, when Solomon built the temple, he built two bronze pillars that you would have to pass between in order to enter the gates of the temple. He named the pillars, carved it on the big bronze pillar. You know the name of one of those pillars? Boaz. And so every time they would enter the temple gates, they would be reminded of this man and his integrity and his honor, the willingness to sacrifice for others. I think we probably have a lesson here, don't you think? We probably should be aware of evaluating ministry opportunities by what's in it for me. And what's it going to cost me? What do I have to sacrifice for this? I think many churches are set up that way. So you just sit down and be comfortable and we will serve you and serve your kids. And, and all the workers will do all the work and you are here just to receive and have your needs met. I think if we have that evaluation of ministry, whether it's in the church or whether wherever God leads us, I wonder how many blessings we'll actually lose, opportunities we'll let slip by. And Boaz is willing to sacrifice for this woman in order to perpetuate the name of the dead. And clearly the town is impressed with him because they not only witness to his vows, they begin to pray for him in verse 11. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. Now that's a pretty big prayer, isn't it? You know, Rachel and Leah built up the house of Israel. May, may Ruth be like that. May she have lots of babies, they say. And then he prays for, they pray for Boaz, reading on in verse 11. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. May your renown go forth. May people talk about you and your integrity. They have no idea how this is actually going to be fulfilled. And certainly it is, as we see even today. Lastly, they pray for their, their home. And may your house, verse 12, be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. May you have a lineage like the house of Perez. Perez, by the way, is a descendant of Judah and Tamar. And Judah would be an ancestor of Boaz. 
And so they say, may, may, you, may you be like that. We don't have time, by the way, to dive into that story. And I'm kind of happy because it's another unsavory kind of shady story. And so you could look at that. That's Genesis 38 if you're interested. But the point is that Tamar was this Canaanite woman who became the mother of Perez and carried on the line of Judah. And they are saying, may Ruth, this Moabite woman, likewise carry on that line. And we see this beautiful picture here from verses 9 all the way through 11. It seems like a wedding is taking place. Boaz is making his vows, his public vows. Weddings are always to be a public event. There are public witnesses to this. We have witnessed that this is happening. There's even a a prayer of blessing there, that their marriage would would be consummated and blessed. I mean, there's a wedding going on here. It's a a shame that Ruth isn't there, of course. Uh, But I think he's, he's marrying her right here. Well, if it's not there, he certainly does in verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. God in his sovereign love provides a wedding, a marriage for a couple. And there he is, the blessings of God. I was wondering why, why it was that Boaz took Ruth to be his wife. I don't know if you ever thought about that. Why, why would he pick her? Um, and we're, we're purely speculating here. But it is interesting to me. I wonder if that she, Ruth, reminded Boaz of someone else. Another pagan woman who had left her family and her idolatry to worship the one true God. And I speak of Boaz's mother, who's not named in this book, but is in the Gospel of Matthew. Is none other than Rahab the prostitute. And I wonder if he saw how mom came from this foreign land and heard about the grace of God and surrendered her life to, to uh, him. And Boaz said, well, I, I, I certainly this woman could do the same. It's a beautiful legacy, perhaps. And so was here we see that they're, they're married, they're at this wedding, and we're kind of left wondering what happened to Naomi's afflicting God. As we see, God loves. God loves us. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. It might be uh, interesting to note that the Bible teaches that things like marriage and families and even a well-working government are gifts from God. They're ways He blesses you. And His blessings are designed to not just terminate on themselves, but to draw you to Him. And Christians, He's gifted you too, hasn't He? And His gifts that He gives to you show us His character. Sometimes we're, we're tempted like Naomi in the midst of hardship to misjudge God, to, to accuse Him, shake our fist at Him. And His gifts, I think, are helpful to help us navigate through our troubles. It's also helpful to know us, know that we're not at the end of our journey. If you're here today, you haven't reached the destination. And so don't judge God by your experiences so far. Your journey is not over. You may be like Naomi in chapter 1 in the midst of hardship and difficulty. You may be like Naomi in chapter 2 where there's this gleaming hope. Or chapter 3 where you're waiting. Or maybe you're like chapter 4 where everything is wonderful and incredible. The reality is the path is not finished. You see how wrong that Naomi was to judge God in the midst of her pain. You and I might be tempted to do the same. Don't. Trust in God's sovereign love for you. He's not done with you. You have not reached your destination as we see His love in this marriage. We'll quickly consider God's sovereign love secondly in an heir for a family. An heir for a family. Verse 13, we read on, And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. A couple things I think you should note about verse 13. Uh, First of all, note the order of events. First comes marriage. Then comes baby, right? You pick that up, 
right? First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes, what is it? A baby in a carriage. So I'm just letting you know, we rejoice in God's grace when we don't follow His good and righteous plan. But He certainly has a plan for us, desires for us. You also, interesting to know how it is that they got this baby, right? So let's just talk for a moment about how babies are made. There's a couple answers to that question. Um, we could talk naturally, how, how babies are made naturally. If you, I'm not going to do that. If you want more information on that, you could talk to Pastor Josh. Right? <laughs> um, but, but we can likewise talk about the fact that, that babies are not made purely naturalistically. Please do not understand that the Bible teaches that babies are simply a process of natural events. It's not true. God is the creator of life. And it is the Lord who gave her conception. In answer, perhaps, to the people's prayers, may God make you like Rachel and Leah. You see, they are praying for... You got married? You know what we're going to pray for? Babies. And lots of babies. Why? Because children are a... Amen. It's a blessing to you. May God fill your house. In fact, it's interesting to think Ruth was barren for 10 years and Rachel and Leah were likewise barren, were they not, for a time. And may God make you like these women, a mother. And God answers that prayer. In verse 14, we see a birthday party, perhaps. The woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. May His name be renowned. He says, you have a restorer of life. Your family is going to continue. Verse 15, he, he will restore. He'll be able to restore your life and nourish you of your old age. See all these wonderful praises. They say perhaps the best for last for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. She said, Ruth loves you. And when we say love you, we mean it in the biblical sense, not that she likes to hang out with you and likes to go shopping with you and go out to lunch. She is sacrificing for you. She's devoted to you. And she is, by the way, Naomi, though you have lost two sons, Ruth is worth seven. What a wonderful praise, incredible uh, affirmation. Verse 16 tells us that Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying his son has been born to Naomi. And so there's grandma with a baby in her lap and surrounded by cheering friends. I mean, this is pretty good, isn't it? And this is, this is, this is pretty cool. Especially in light of how this book started. Remember, three funerals. And we end up with a wedding and a baby. We started this book with a, a, a group of women full of weeping. And now we end this book with a group of women full of praising. No wonder they said that this little boy is proof that your life has been restored. But what's interesting is it, it's all about Naomi. Did you pick that up? It, it's, it seems Ruth kind of fades away. Boaz is nowhere to be found. And it's verse 14, Naomi's Redeemer. Verse 15, Naomi's Restoration. Verse 16, Naomi's Lap. Verse 17, isn't this amazing? A son has been born to Naomi. And there's, there's Naomi with a baby. Like Ruth can't get her baby back. Right? It's, it's, it's like grandma. No, you're not. You're giving her the shifty eyes. She's got all her friends around her. I'm holding this baby. You don't get this baby. I'm hold, Grandma's holding the baby, right? Like Just like a grandma's supposed to be. But isn't it interesting that all the focus is on grandma because what the author is trying to tell us is all the accusations that Naomi lobbied against God are not true. He was never against her. He was always ruling. We start with Naomi's loss and we end with Naomi's gain. God has been controlled throughout this whole time. And yet His sovereign rule is never a straight line. 
There are twists and turns throughout. Life is not an interstate. It is an adventure as God leads us and guides us. A son is given to Naomi. A son has been given to him. I think this is one of the reasons why it's important to study this book, that it might be a map for you to trust when life becomes difficult, when the path is exhausting, the way forward is unclear, that you would rule, learn, even in those times of difficulty, that God's rule is for your good. It's not straight, but it's for your good. Therefore, you can trust Him, can't you, in your pain and your hardship. I'm not saying, by the way, that everything works out like this. Not everybody ends up with a marriage or a baby in the lap, a grandma holding baby. Sometimes things become even increasingly difficult, rarely according to our plan. Things are hard at times in some people's lives. What I am telling you is that there is coming a day, not in this life, but in the life to come, when the Bible tells us that I heard a loud voice at the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be crying or mourning or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And I heard the one who sat upon the throne saying, behold, I am making all things new. We're all headed to that destination. We haven't reached the end yet. In fact, we haven't reached the end in this book yet. As great as this has been, it actually gets better. And I almost think this is kind of part of the movie where you look at your sweetheart and you think, oh, this wasn't this great. This is just fantastic. And your heart's moved and you're just all upbeat and you start to gather your stuff and the screen fades to black and you're about to walk out of the theater and all of a sudden you hear a voice saying, oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you the name of the boy. They named him Obed. And you're thinking, Obed? They named him Obed? (laughs) Obed's the father of Jesse. Jesse's the father of David. As we thirdly consider God's sovereign love in a king for a nation. That's exactly what verse 17 tells us. That Ruth, the Moabite widow, once a destitute gleaner in the fields of Bethlehem, is the great-grandmother of King David. We're thinking marriage, son, and grandma. Isn't this great? And God's saying, well, you know, by the way, I am bringing about the greatest king that would ever reign over my people, Israel. And they had no idea. They didn't even know to ask for this or imagine this. But God says, this is what I am doing. In fact, even from verses 18 through 22, He gives us these ten generations, doesn't He? And I think purposely so, because some generations are skipped. Ten generations for the ten years of death and barrenness in Moab. He's bringing about a king. It ends there in verse 22. Obed, father Jesse, and Jesse, father David. They haven't even thought about a king yet. This is the time of judges, and God is already planning to meet their needs. And we want to see God is awesome. He's incredible. They don't even know what's going on, and God is ruling. And all of this because Ruth showed kindness to her mother-in-law, some little act of love. Now, of course, it wasn't little to her. It was huge to her. But to the grand scheme of things, it wasn't very big. It'd be like some woman in Ghana inviting her aging parents to come live with her. And I trust that would be significant for her. For the rest of us, it, it wouldn't matter at all. But that's not true. That's not true. Because God's weaving it all together, isn't He? It's not what we learn here, that God is taking our life and using it for something far greater than ourselves. Doesn't that therefore cause you to wonder what God will do in your small acts of faithfulness, not only to those nearby, but to the generations to come? That your life is some pebble 
And the God's ocean sending out waves impacting those you had no idea would ever exist. Therefore, friends, I think you should learn to follow God in your ordinary, mundane life, realizing that it, your life is nothing but ordinary. Nothing, nothing at all like ordinary, but rather. It's not mundane. Your life is not trivial. When you serve a widow or love a mother-in-law or glean in the fields or fall in love or have a baby, for the Christian, these are all connected to eternity. God is weaving these all together. I wonder how your words tomorrow or your actions on Tuesday afternoon or your decisions on Thursday will impact generations yet to come. God is good. We see His goodness in this baby looking up in the teary eyes of his grandmother. We hear His goodness when David one day will walk upon this earth and sing of God's kindness, perhaps learning it from his grandpa Obed. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take shadow in the refuge of your wings. I love the fact that King David says, not, does, not only does Israel take refuge in the shadow of your wings, but the children of mankind. The King of Israel recognizes that this God is not just for Israel, but is for all people as we turn fourthly to God's sovereign love and a Redeemer for the world. See, the genealogy doesn't end with David. I invite you to quickly turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Genealogy continues, doesn't it? In Matthew 1, we have almost a direct uh, quotation from Ruth, those last four verses in Ruth. We read in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 3, And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, verse 4, and Ram the father of Minadad, and Minadad the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. There we have that information. And Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And that's where Ruth ends. But you know, that's not where Matthew ends. He keeps going until we get to verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. A Redeemer is coming. God is bringing forth a Redeemer. It's amazing to me that Boaz stands up and says, I will redeem Ruth. And it's actually through Boaz and Ruth that they actually get the one that will truly redeem them. In fact, I think Boaz points us to what this Redeemer is like. You see, he has to have the right to redeem. He has to be kin. He has to have the ability to redeem. He must pay the price. He has to have the willingness to redeem. Mr. So-and-so was not willing. Boaz was. This all points us to Christ, though, doesn't it? He has the right to redeem us. He who took on flesh and became like us in every way except sin as our king. Ken, he has that right. He, does he have the ability to redeem us? Well, he calmed the waves and he fed the thousands and he freed the demonized and he healed the sick and he raised the dead and he, is, he had the redemption price that he was uh, uh, able to pay. But the question is, is he willing? Well, yes, he is, isn't he? He would take up the cross of Calvary in obedience to the Father and out of love for you and I. And not only take up the cross, but He'd take up your sin upon Him. And not only take up your sin, but He'd take up the wrath of God upon Him in order that you and I might be redeemed. He is our kinsman redeemer. He has come for us to redeem us. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain that you and I might be bought by Him. You belong to Him, I hope. Maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian, you have not been redeemed. I wonder if God in His sovereign kindness to you brought you here today that you might hear this story, that He might open your heart 
that you might pray even now, Lord Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God, that you died on the cross for my sin, that you rose three days later. I bow my knee to you. Redeem me. Buy me. This is not some game or trick. That prayer, when it's heartfully made, will change your eternity according to the Word of God. And for us who have been bought by Him, can we follow Him? Can we leave this place looking for the outcast and the immigrant and the needy and the hurting? Tell them about our Redeemer and to minister to them? Can we share these truths with our neighbors and the nations and places like Eagle Butte and Western Africa and Kurdistan? What greater cause do we have to give our life to than to make the name of our Redeemer known, to spread His fame? You certainly have the right, don't you? He has commissioned you. You have the ability, don't you? He has placed His Spirit within you. The question is, are you willing? Are you willing? Does He mean that much to you that you would speak of Him? May God make us willing. May God realize that we live upon this earth to make His fame known, to glorify Him, that He is worth so much more than college football and retirement plans and all the other trivial and temporal things that we give our hearts to. It is Him who is worthy of our life. And may He help us to see that. In fact, let's celebrate His worth in this Lord's Supper before us. Let's rejoice that you have been redeemed by Him and ask Him to help us to spread that news of redemption. If you're visiting with us here this morning and you're not a a believer in Christ, we're happy that you are here. We do hope you feel welcome. We do ask when these plates are passed by you that you'll just kind of pass them discreetly by. This meal, according to Scripture, is for Christians only. And so please do not participate in it. And by the way, if you're also here and you might have a gluten allergy, we know there were some college students worshiping with us last year. We actually have gluten-free bread that will be passed by by one of our deacons. If you'll just raise your hand when the bread is going by discreetly, and we'll make sure that you can participate in this Lord's Supper as we remember His work. I would like to give you an opportunity, as Scripture instructs us, to examine your heart, and you might repent of any sin. This is a meal for sinners. It's a meal to celebrate grace and mercy, but it is a meal for repentant sinners. And so let us pray silently as we prepare ourselves.